Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And good evening. We have returned for another episode of A Different Perspective, and I really, truly am Kevin Randall. I am joined today by Robert Schaefer, whom I've known for ever in a week, and I believe he and I actually went sailing on the Potomac once with Philip Klass, who did not remember this event, 
and Robert may in fact remember it, but Robert is a- Yes, yeah, but I remember it. <laughs> okay, then I have, I have confirmation. Robert is a writer with a lifelong interest in astronomy and the question of life on other planets. He is one of the leading skeptical investigators of UFOs, a fellow of the well-known Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, CSI, which used to be PSYCOP, and has written the Psychic uh, Vibration column for its publication, The Skeptical Inquirer, for over 35 years. He is a founding director and a past chairman of the Bay Area Skeptics, a skeptics group in, guess what, San Francisco, Bay Area. And he has published books on a variety of paranormal topics and has appeared on many radio and television programs. His latest book is Bad UFOs, and you can learn more about Robert at his website, www.debunker.com, which gives you a clue to his attitudes, and his blog, www.badufos.com. Robert, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thank you, Kevin. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> even though we are going to clash somewhat, I fear. Oh, that's, that's even better. <laughs> that's what I makes for better radio anyhow. Right. Although, I don't know, there's some things that we may not clash on as much as we might have at one time, but uh, that's uh, further discussion. Well, I think, I think as I have aged, <laughs> matured, uh, <laughs> I have... Uh, changed my attitudes based on evidence I've seen or the lack of evidence for certain things. And I would hope that, that you feel the same way or, or operate in the same fashion, change your attitudes and whatnot as you see evidence or the lack of that evidence. But you, um, if I read your book correctly, uh, Bad UFOs, get that in once again, uh, yeah. you, you come at this from the point of view that there is no alien visitation. Well, yes, that's uh, that's my uh, thinking, and it's been my thinking, I think, for as long as I've been interested and been following this stuff, and that's been, uh, as in your case, it has been just about 50 years, because uh, during the 19, late 60s, I was a student at Northwestern University, and, of course, our department chairman in astronomy was uh, Dr. J. Owen Hynek, and uh, I spoke with him a lot, got to know him. I took his classes, and uh, he was a very uh, sincere guy. But, uh, you know, we disagreed. He was inclined to believe in what he would call reliable witnesses, you know, that if if just anybody told of seeing, a, you know, a fleet of UFOs or something land or whatever, you wouldn't take it too seriously. But if they were reliable witnesses and they were pillars of the community and they were sober individuals and they had college degrees or important positions, then, you know, you can't deny the testimony of people like that. And so these things must really exist as described. And that's basically what Heineck's um, you know, his his position on this. And I, uh, on the other hand, would argue, well, not just that, you know, from what we know of psychology, and, and now we know a whole lot more about this, how easy it is to fool people and how, how easy it is for people to remember things wrongly. Um, but uh, so uh, my argument being that, uh, you know, you would expect to have a few oddball, uh, you know, errors and things like this, just, you know, if enough people going outside and um, hearing stories about UFOs and news reports and whatever, and it kind of uh, colors how we see uh, a rather ambiguous stimulus that's uh, up in the sky. We perceive things in, in uh, ways that our brains have uh, prepared us to uh, perceive them. 
which is an interesting for you to say because when I did my PhD dissertation, it was a uh, belief structure affecting the identification of ambiguous stimuli, which are lights in the sky. And uh-huh. yeah, yeah. That if well, you, then you know that, all about it. Then if you came at it from the point of view that uh, there's alien visitation and you saw a strange light in the sky, you interpreted it as a UFO, meaning an alien spacecraft, not unidentified, unidentified flying object. And if you had a deep religious background, you might identify it as a manifestation of angels or ghosts or something of that nature. So, yes, and and number of uh, sightings, a number of religious visions and things, especially when you look back in history, far dwarfs any number of people who are uh, seeing aliens. I think even today there are more people who claim to have encounters with angels and such Robert, than to I need have to, encounters I, I, with aliens. I need to interrupt you because we're g- coming up against a break here already. We will be back with a different perspective. And for more information, look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. How would you like to be able to read other people's minds? Well, the next best thing is here. When you know how to read a person's name, you know how the person thinks, feels, and behaves. Each letter in our name holds a key to unlock our true essence. Our name contains both our gifts and challenges in this lifetime. Nemology science discovers personality secrets hidden in the placement of the letters of our names, including the first and last impression people remember about us. Sharon shows us how to interpret the arrangement of letters as outlined in her book, Know the Name, Know the Person. Sharon Lynn Wyeth created Nemology Science after 18 years of research and testing her theories and has supported thousands of people around the world in understanding themselves and others better. You'll enjoy Sharon's unique teachings as she shares her system to learn the gifts behind your given birth name. Even if you don't like your birth name, there are jewels in this book. If you're thinking of changing your name, ready to name your child, or wanting to get along better with others, this is the book for you. If you'd like to improve your relationships and change your life for the better, get the book today. Know the name, know the person. Or visit www.knowthename.com. That's www.knowthename.com. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. 
For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life has no meaning, let The Fun of Dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying... And we are back. I have somehow spaced out. I don't know what I was thinking there. I've, my guest is Robert Schaefer, who is... The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your Quarter Pounder. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Charles Barkley in a pickup game. We'll take Barkley. Ha! First pick! Sorry, kids! Yep, even easier than that. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? Okay, here's the plan. Pass me the ball every time. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One NA member FDIC. An arch skeptic who believes, doesn't believe, I guess, doesn't believe in alien visitation and thinks the um, all the UFO sightings that are reported have a terrestrial explanation and for a great majority of them, I think he's probably right. Uh, we were talking a little bit about um, belief structure and its impact on uh, identification of ambiguous stimuli. I think we really kind of covered that. I know I had to interrupt Robert because we were up against a break there. But uh, I, think, I think he and I both agree that, that in, in many cases, the witness will identify the stimuli is something that they're familiar with or comfortable with or something like that, uh, which may, uh, I guess, inhibit their actual identification. But what I, wanted, I wanted to get into some of this skeptical stuff with, with Robert. And the question, <laughs> well, the, the, the question I have, and I've never got a satisfactory answer for it, and I, I, Robert probably can give us one, is, is uh, you know, we um, – who are investigate UFOs, if we believe in alien visitation, you know, they, they say we have a bias built into our investigation that leads us in that direction. And I'm wondering, Robert, don't you have a similar bias built into your investigations because you've, you, you think there's a trustful explanation? So well, that you, bias... You could, you could call it a bias, but um, I don't think of it that way. I think in terms of Occam's razor, uh, we know... Uh, well, let's say we don't, you know, people claim that aliens are visiting us, but there's no hard science or anything to uh, support that. So if, uh, as far as beings 
you know, that are not known to exist. If you can hypothesize unknown beings as an explanation for something you want to explain, um, well, Occam says that you should choose the uh, the uh, one that has the explanation that has the fewest speculative elements or the fewest new uh, new entities or whatever. If we have to create a new category of entities, such as visiting extraterrestrials who are very shy and play peekaboo and in general hide from us most of the time, uh, there's there's no hard evidence that such things exist, and there's a lot of reasons to think that it doesn't exist. So I think just Occam's razor alone compels one to uh, be skeptical and to uh, adopt the null hypothesis, which is, no, these are just things that we've seen before, meteors and whatever else, and now we have human uh, hoaxes and uh, drone flights and all kinds of things that people are seeing, Chinese lanterns, and that they're perceiving them according to uh, you know previously uh, uh, existing concepts in their mind what about when we have That's multiple ch- what if we but what, what what about when we have multiple chains of evidence meaning we've got eyewitnesses on the ground and i understand the problem with eyewitness testimony maybe better than most people and we have yeah. say radar tracks and landing traces and maybe photographs we have multiple chains of evidence uh so clearly we're not dealing with somebody's um well but let's ask but then let's ask the question of whether these are all really uh consistent or is it uh you know what when they say there's a radar visual uh case uh, what'll usually happen is some target uh, unexpected target turns up in radar and somebody will say go outside and see if you can see anything and guy goes up and sees venus oh yeah i see something you know and that that goes down as a radar visual case uh if you could show very clearly that you know all these things are consistent in terms of time in terms of direction and so on then i think you would have something solid but i don't think there's any cases that really quite come up to that uh to that uh, level what about the Washington Nationals when you had uh, aircraft scrambled off uh, what Newcastle Air Force Base to intercept ob- objects that were seen on the radar screens? And when the uh, the, the jets got into position, the uh, anomalous propagation, the targets seemed to disappear. Or in one case where the objects actually approached the fighter plane and the, and the pilot saw it coming at him and was, uh, you might say, engaged by the by the UFOs. Well, I mean, if, if the first part of what you said, I think, tells us a lot about what we need to know here, and that is that there was anomalous propagation and a good deal of confusion. And when you get a situation like this of, you know, jets flying around and targets appearing and disappearing, I mean, I don't recall the exact specifics of, of this this case that you're referring to, but again, is it the case that everything ties in, you know, consistently and uh, even if it appears to be the case in just this one instance, the, the question I would ask is why, you know, why don't we have, I mean, if there were other pilots up there and other targets, why just this one instance where it seemed to be real and everything else, they seem to be chasing, you know, uh, chasing uh, mirages or, or, you know, anomalous propagations. I would say so, to I mean, you, I would say to I would you, that, I would say that other pilots did see them. And in fact, some cases the pilots said, you have a target on the radar at this location. Uh, they, so the, the pilot of the aircraft, and these were airline pilots who are the credible observers that Alan Heineck would talk about, um, 
And, yeah, and well, that, he. Yeah, that, I remember what he said, but well, <laughs> I, what, what, what I'm what, what I'm saying is, I mean, these guys are are familiar with what's in the sky, and sure, they can be fooled. The, the child's witted case proves that. But we have we have airline pilots who spotted the things and called uh, the air traffic controllers, and the air traffic controller says, "Yes, there's something there." And we had uh, in one instance the uh, target seen on three separate radars. So you've got some very good radar visual sightings going on there, and it's not that uh, somebody said, well, go outside and take a look. It's a pilot saying, do you have traffic in my vicinity, which is a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. Well, you know, not having that information right in front of me, I can't give you a detailed uh, discussion of it. But, uh, you know, if you want to point for for further discussion down the line, either on blogs or in another show, uh, is something that uh, you think is the best uh, best, uh, accounting of that and the most credible accounting of it, I'll take a look at it and uh, spend a little time and see what I can um, give you my... uh, uh, my take on it uh, then, but I mean, if this, you know, I, I, there's been a lot written about this, these cases, or it's not really one case, it's a whole slew of cases of uh, yes. around uh, 1952 in the summer, and uh, class has written about it, a lot of people have written about it, uh, so, you know, I'm, you know, if we want to try to pin this down, uh, we're going to have to um, get a little more specific here. Well, but, I'm just, uh, I'm just, I'm just suggesting that there's uh, uh, an area involved in this case, it kind of meets some of the criterion, which is not to say what we're dealing with is alien spacecraft, merely that um, there were things in the sky that were not easily identified, and it it worried the president greatly, which would have been Harry Truman at the time. And and this resulted in what I think of as the greatest headline I've ever seen in a newspaper, banner headline across the Cedar Rapids Gazette, which is right out of a science fiction movie. It says, Saucer Swarm Over Capital. And I'm thinking, <laughs> didn't I see that in Earth versus the flying saucers or something? Uh, anyway, well, that something was that like was just, that. yeah, that was just one example. And and uh, I really don't have anything sitting in front of me telling me about that. I'm just kind of dealing with what I remember yeah. about the case yeah. as well. But yeah. I talked I talked to Dewey Fournay, who was the Pentagon liaison for UFOs, and Al Chop, who were was the uh, the official civilian spokesman on UFOs for the Pentagon, who were in the radar rooms the nights, one of the nights this happened. And so they were, they were giving me kind of an interesting perspective of what, what happened that night. And <clears throat> I'm not sure that the anomalous propagation argument works for everything in that case. Um, although there, there was, a, a, it, you know, to be fair, there was one case where they, Radar operators were trying to direct a guy to an object, a, a B-25 pilot and his crew to an object. And every time they said you're right over the object, he was over the Potomac River. And there was some kind of a boat on there. And the anomalous propagation bends the radar waves. So it may have been that the radar scope was picking up this object on the Potomac. So there are yeah, some of the- sometimes ground objects turn up. Now they, the electronics has gotten much better in uh, the radar in terms of uh, rejecting false images. And uh, it has been pointed out by Phil Class and others that these types of uh, radar sightings, uh, big-scale radar sightings especially, aren't really happening anymore. And it's either because the UFOs went away, as some people would say, or it's because uh, we're getting better at identifying and rejecting uh, false targets and false propagation. So, you know, it's um, it's hard to say. Can I ask you something about Roswell? Can we get on that for a moment? I was gonna. I was actually gonna wait until the next segment before we got to Roswell. Oh, but all right, let, fine. We'll, let, do, let, we'll let, do the Roswell go, next. Go, 
go ahead and go ahead and ask my question, your question, because it may lead into the question I had for you. So let's see what we can right. do. Right. Okay. Well, I'm uh, looking at this um, review by Jerome Clark of your newest book of the uh, Roswell in the 21st century. And, uh, and this is in uh, 40 times, I believe, the current issue. Um, he says that this book is noteworthy for being the first recantation by a major figure in the controversy now nearing its fourth decade. Um, so the first question I'd want to ask you is, uh, uh, is do you agree with his um, uh, characterization? He calls it recanting Roswell certainty. Do you feel that there is a, an element of uh, recanting uh, in this book? Well, when you, when you say element, certainly there is. And I, what I did was look at it as a cold case, you know, starting over from scratch, looking at all the files, looking at the interviews, how things have gone, what we've learned about some of the witnesses and how um, unreliable they were. And uh, looking at that sort of thing and bringing those things forward, trying to put everything in, into one place where a reader who is familiar with Roswell or not familiar with Roswell can get the, the latest information, but, uh, but get both sides of the argument for a lot of these things. And I look at, for example, the, um, I call Walter Hott the, father, the real father of Roswell simply because of the uh, way his story evolved and how he was able to guide us to specific witnesses. I'm thinking here of Glenn Dennis. I, we, I had heard that there had been a mortician involved, and I remember sitting in his living room uh, asking him questions. He said, I know the name you're, you're fishing for. It's uh, Glenn Dennis. And Glenn Dennis had this marvelous story of, of the nurse and uh, the uh, preliminary autopsies being conducted at the Roswell Army Airfield and that sort of thing. And uh, it turns out that Glenn Dennis was not telling us the truth, and there were a lot of problems with that. And I try to bring all of that sort of uh, thing out in the book. So we look at that, and then we look at uh, Walter Hott, who had said repeatedly, I only wrote the press release. I only wrote the press release. And in fact, there's one interview that he conducted. He said, I asked Colonel Blanchard if I could see the craft, and Blanchard said no. And so we have that on the record. And then we, we move to 2000 and, and later, and he's talking about how he had seen the craft. He had seen the bodies. But he would contradict himself in a single sentence. Well, I didn't see anything, but I saw one of the bodies or something like that. You know, I did. <laughs> the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. It wasn't quite that way, but it was uh, in that direction. And I'm not sure. Yeah, how that and reliable I have to really uh, have to really congratulate you for pursuing this and for not just letting these inconsistencies slide by, like so many writers will do. Um, I um, wrote. Uh, I, I think this is uh, this is in my book and also uh, in some talks I gave. I talked about uh, Carl Flock and how he. St- Started out as a believer in the Roswell crash story, and he—it was his wife, I guess—was working for a congressman, what was his name, Ship, and so on. And they had requested this uh, 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 information from the government concerning Roswell. Anyway, he ended up 
uh, very skeptical. Uh, he wrote a book, 2001, Roswell, Inconvenient Facts and the Will to Believe. And in it, um, he said he demonstrated inconsistencies, like you're talking about, that just uh, of the just four people who are publicly identified as witnesses to alien bodies. I'm going to have said, to interrupt quote, you. Uh, hold on to that quote. Okay. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. I promise you this time we'll come back to it because I want to talk yeah. about this I as know. well. Right. Excellent. And, and some of this, some of this, we're talking about Carl Flock and his investigation. You can find uh, some information about that at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And don't forget that Robert is at www.debunker.com, and his blog is www.badufos.com. And we will be right back after this. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at... Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. 
And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life has no meaning, let the fun of dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying... And we are back with Robert Schaefer, whom I cut off because we were coming up against a break here. And he was talking about Carl Flock and his book, Roswell, Inconvenient Facts and the Will to Believe. And right. you were going to quote how time flies when you're having fun. Oh, absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and you, you were going to read a short segment from that, although I much prefer that you promote my book, Roswell in the 21st Century. Well, but... look, well, I'm, I'm about to get to your book after I talk about his book. Okay. Uh, what Clark said in 2001 was after, after uh, analyzing the story of the four publicly identified witnesses, he said, quote, not one of the purported firsthand witnesses to alien bodies and a lone survivor is credible, not one, end quote. Now, looking at this review uh, in the Fortean Times of your new book, which I haven't seen your new book yet, so I have to rely on what it says here. And uh, it's, supposed uh, to be, and, it's supposed to be coming to you from the publisher, and I, I sent him a copy of the review and your address two weeks ago. Okay, well, Just, fantastic. I'm sure it'll <laughs> get here at some point. Uh, it, he's, uh, the, the reviewer, uh, Jerome Clark, said, of eight claimants, he spoke, that is you, you spoke directly yes. with all, all who said they had observed such bodies, Randall writes, not one, dot, dot, turned out to be telling the truth. So essentially, you're saying what Flock said back then, only you've raised the number from four to eight. And I as always- I... I had always said that I had talked to eight people who claimed to have seen the bodies, and I said that as early as 1991, and yeah. and some of them I thought were quite reliable, and they all – well, Glenn Dennis was one of them, for example, uh, and they all seemed to have blown up on us. So um, Flock was correct on that point that, that the – People who claimed firsthand knowledge of the bodies, we were we were we were left with basically secondhand testimony. Family members who said that my father uh, saw the bodies, or my brother saw the bodies, or something like that. Yeah. So he's right. And but- of course, the whole reason for this is, you know, to try to explain these uh, sightings of bodies. We get this uh, these oddball things, like Andy Jacobson writes that there was a, it was a commie Nazi saucer with uh, Mengele and Stalin, and they had crashed in Roswell with children who'd been mutilated or something. And this crazy stuff like that, or, or that they supposedly the Air Force was dropping uh, crash test dummies or something for, uh, in the desert. And this is uh, intended as an explanation of why we have reports, why people are seeing bodies in the desert. But I think what we've just established is nobody really is testifying to seeing these little bodies, or at least nobody who appears to be telling the truth is seeing bodies. Well, we have, and, we, have, uh, we, have, we have some interesting secondhand testimony, and I, and I quote it that way, secondhand testimony, that, mm-hmm. that suggests that. 
and we and we have some problems. We go back to Carl Flock, and he writes that he had spoken to three firefighters. Uh, Dan Dwyer being a fire lieutenant, the father of Frankie Rowe, who told her that he had seen the, the bodies. And, and Flock says he talked to the firefighters. Not one of them said this was true. They didn't make the run outside the city limits. What I, I point out in, in my book is that uh, I talked to one of those guys as well. And we were talking about this, and he was telling me the exact same thing he told Carl Flock. We didn't make a run. We didn't go out there. And I asked another question. I said, do you know Dan Dwyer? And he said, oh, I know Dan. He went out there. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, he went out in his private car. This colonel came by, and I don't know why it's always a colonel. It's never a captain, never a major. It's always a colonel. Came by and said, we have this handled. You guys don't need to go out there. So Dwyer went out in his private car. So there was no um, fire fire department run out there. So we couldn't find it in the fire records, which we didn't. We couldn't find because I'd looked. But we had a firefighter who... Carl had talked to, who told him that that we didn't make the run out there, which was true, but he didn't ask the follow-up question. And that that kind of bugged me a little bit about Carl's book. He didn't go the extra step to ask the additional question, which leads me into my next point about skepticism. Um, A lot of the skeptics embraced the Project Mogul explanation for Roswell. My question to you is this. What about the entry in Albert Crary's diary? It says flight number four, the culprit, supposedly that caused this this uh, thing, this this idea of an alien spacecraft. Flight number four was canceled and it never flew. How come the skeptical community? And I, I would think, as a skeptic, anything that you you look at, you have to look at it with a skeptical eye, whether it 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 it. Um, kind of fits into your bias or works against your bias, which is what I attempt to do in Roswell in the 21st century, work against my bias in this. But but aren't you obligated as a skeptic to look at even the explanations as skeptically? Oh, absolutely. And you do you do have to uh, keep that in mind. And now I, I forget which flight was, it was supposed to be this one specific flight that yes. they saw. I mean, yeah. Now, um, Again, uh, the, are we certain that you know he says, "Well, it didn't fly," but I, you know, are, are there other records? Are there? Uh, yes. My understanding: there were several uh, flights that went sort of missing, and they landed somewhere, but they didn't find out exactly where. Nope, not true. All the all not the true? flights all the flights are accounted for except for flight number four. Flight number four in Albert Crevy's diary, and he's the guy leading the project in Alamogordo. Uh, at the time, wrote a flight number four. The flight was canceled. He then writes that we flew a cluster of balloons later in the day. Cluster of balloons was not flight number four. We know what a cluster of balloons was based on other documentation that that we have on that. There is no notice in um, the records of flight number four. It says the first successful flight in New Mexico was flight number five. Charles Moore who was the one that kind of got us rolling in this Project Mogul thing, who yeah. was on the project back in 1947, said that, um, that that flight number four actually performed as well as flight number five, which leads us to the question, if that was true, why is there no record of flight number four, and why does Albert Crary's diary say it was canceled? So we have the documentation that tells us one thing. We have a witness telling us something else, and... I'm not pointing a finger at you specifically, Robert, but we have the skeptical skeptical community embracing that explanation when the documentation says it simply doesn't work. 
Well, it, I guess what you're saying is that the documentation uh, is uh, inconsistent here because, you know, Moore says one thing and the other guy says another thing. And uh, No, you know, no, I, no, no. Was... Moore, Moore has no documentation to back it up. Moore is going strictly on his memory of the flights. He's saying this is what happened. I'm saying the documentation tells us one thing. There is no contrary documentation to refute it. It is merely Moore's explanation more uh, explanation yeah well again I, I you know i haven't followed all the details of that yet uh, but uh, you know if it does turn out that that you know this is this is ironclad in terms of it not being mogul i, I mean there could certainly be a lot of other things just plain even just plain old weather balloons from somewhere else from a long ways away coming down i don't think we have enough really good information as to what was found we do have that photo uh, General Ramey and uh, the debris, and uh, so I guess you know that's basically is our best. Uh, if you believe that that's what they actually recovered, or if you believe that they switched it somehow as part of the, uh, you know, well, as, it, part, as part of the cover-up. It's absolutely true that the photographs taken in uh, uh, General Ramey's office are of a weather balloon and a radar reflector. That's absolutely clear. And Project Mogul was made up of radar reflectors and um, weather balloons and microphones and some other things like that. The yeah, arrays, yeah. The arrays um, were at one point about 600 feet long, and they were required to file mod uh, modems, notums, uh, modems, notums, which are notices to airmen, for those of you who are not pilots, uh, telling them about the, this, the hazards to navigation. And a notum could be something, a runway at an airport is closed for reconstructions, or there's trees at the end of the runway that, that could present a hazard. But it's, it's things that you need to know about the, about the airport. And since these arrays were four, 600 feet long, they thought they might pose a threat to aerial navigation, and so they were required to file notums uh, of the first some flights about that out of New Mexico. But they, the, the uh, thing was, they were not allowed to fly them in cloudy weather and they were not allowed to launch them uh, prior to dawn so that the pilots would have an opportunity to see them. And flight number four, according to Moore, was launched at 2.30 in the morning, um, even though Crary says that we, we had no flight today because of clouds. So, I mean, I think the, the documentation is pretty clear on that point. And when you get your copy... Of Roswell in the 21st century, there is a huge appendix that deals with all that information in in great, great detail. So uh, all the arguments are there and what Moore has said and what other people have said and what the arguments turn out to be. Um, and I'm not sure how, how excited the radio audience is about the, our discussion of this <laughs> in, in such detail. But, but the question was simply that um, when we have documentation which I think the skeptics would say take precedent over memories that are 40, 50 years old. Yes, why do, why do the so skeptics, too. why do the skeptics reject the documentation for project mogul? And I don't think for very good reasons. And, and um, I, I've noticed that in, in other cases where there uh, the skeptical argument really doesn't match um, all the facts. And yet the, the skeptical community seems to embrace it. And I, that was my question. Why you shouldn't you remain skeptical of all aspects of it? And it seems yes, that they... well, well, of course, of course. And I and I remain open to uh, explanations uh, that it may have not been mogul, may have been some other 
uh, explanation, I would I would push back against extraterrestrial explanations on the grounds of Occam's razor and such. But you know, if if somebody wants to suggest that something else of uh, human construction was out there and was found and was not identified, then uh, you know it's. Uh, you know, I don't have a problem with that. But getting back to what we said earlier about, you know, the debris photographed in General Ramey's office, I mean, what you would presumably be saying is if this was not Mogul, if this was something else, um, then they must have come up with the debris from somewhere and then switched it. Because what we're seeing is clearly, you know, radar reflectors and, and things like that. And so, um, but that's not know, a problem. Just, that's not a problem for an active Air Force base, which has a weather station on it. And I actually yeah. asked Irving Newton, who was the weather officer that dis- the, identified the balloon in the radar target in Ramey's office, uh, which is yeah. another bit of minutia for that, for the, all of you. But um, I asked him specifically, well, could you have found a radar target and a weather balloon if you needed to? And he said, oh, yeah. He could. And um, they, these were launched. At, uh, there's all kinds of newspaper articles here. These were launched from all over the uh, country, radar targets and weather balloons all the time. So it wasn't it wasn't all that unusual to find that. And in fact, uh, Brazel had said and quoted in the newspaper, I found weather balloons on other occasions. And this was nothing like those. Had it been Mogul, it would have been exactly like that because that's what it was. Mogul was. Yeah, only bigger. Well, more, more of them. More, more of them. But, came down, yeah. But, yeah. but but go ahead to try to get to uh, the uh, an explanation. If we're if you're kind of pulling away from an extraterrestrial explanation and you don't think the mogul explanation is good, then what do you think really did happen? Assuming it's not extraterrestrial or time travelers or something like that, uh, but something of human construction. What what do you think happened? Well, first of all, let's not rule out time travelers because that's much more fun than some of these other explanations. I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, or people uh, from the hollow earth, you know, they crawl out from the hollow earth. And, no, uh, no, that's not nearly as much fun as time travelers. Well, uh, you're right. Time travel is a lot of fun. The, uh, the, the problem is I don't have an explanation. I don't know what it was. I will tell you it's not mogul. I can tell you it wasn't a rocket from White Sands. I can tell you it wasn't an uh, aircraft accident. I, I can tell you a lot of things that it wasn't. I don't really know what it was. I am concerned because we have problems with the – um, the the extraterrestrial explanation based on the testimonies that have collapsed over the years. But we're going to have to uh, wait to talk a little bit more about this when we come back because we have to take a short break here. Uh, a lot of this has been discussed at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and it is discussed in great detail in Roswell in the 21st Century. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net.
Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash X zone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash X zone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. What Happened in Benghazi is revealed by Nicholas Genix, author of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. He informs the American people that President Obama deceived them by advocating a strong foreign policy prior to the 2012 presidential election, and Hillary Clinton supported this deception. As the title infers, there is a connection between Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. Ample evidence informs Americans that Obama's early indoctrination in the Quran developed an infinity for Islam, why the Quran is the source of discontent in many countries, and why the Obama foreign policy deception led to poor military action and caused the loss of American lives in Benghazi. Genix provides 36 questions for the Select Committee on Benghazi to validate if Americans are justified to mistrust President Obama and Hillary Clinton. An overview of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi is presented on the website www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. 
You're listening to the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. And for those of you keeping score at home, we are back. And I don't know how this has happened that we've come back, given the discussion that went on privately here. Uh, we, I wanted to move away from the Roswell case, which I think um, Robert and I pretty well hammered into the ground. And you can take a look at some of what he says in his book, uh, Bad UFOs, or at his blog, uh, www.debunker.com and www.badufos.com. Uh, in his book, he talks about abductions. And the one thing that annoys me about these discussions, well, there's two things. Number one is, unfortunately, I am the guy who first reported the aliens coming into the bedroom. If you go back to 1976, I did a story about a, a family who thought they had been abducted by U, uh, UFOs, and they had come into the house to take them out. I think that's the first time it ever appeared in print. So that's my responsibility, and I abdicate that right now. Uh, the second thing is... Well, yeah, I wrote, I attributed that to uh, our dear friend Bud Hopkins, of course, uh, and, you know, he being his book, uh, what was it, his uh, first Intr book Intruders. was one... Uh, Intruders, yeah, was the one that uh, first uh, had this business, uh, at least on a big scale, had the aliens coming into the bedroom. Before that, if you wanted to be abducted, you had to go out someplace where it's dark and maybe a clear sky and a lot of stars and the moon or something. But then, you know, the aliens would come and get you rather than you uh, going out and, uh, you know, having to kind of be ensnared by them. So you're well, saying well, let you me actually let, beat let, him let, by a couple of years on this? Oh, absolutely, that's, that's absolutely. Absolutely. I did it in a Saga's UFO report. It was called A Family Kidnapped by UFOs. And in the story, the woman didn't want to be identified by her last name. So I used the pseudonym Pat, Pat uh, Price, it, which is the actually an intruder's. But Hopkins talks about that case and uses the name Pat Price, even though after that, uh, months afterwards, her name came out as Pat Roach. Um, and, and she was very sincere. In, in her belief, she was just, I think, a victim of sleep paralysis. Uh, but she had talked about how the creatures had come in the, to the house, and she remembered one standing off in the corner with some kind of a device. And you look at sleep paralysis, and you, you learn that uh, in, what, 80 or 90 percent of the cases of sleep paralysis, the person who suffers from this uh, talks about an alien, some kind of presence in the room with them. So, uh, yeah, if so you look at that. I think the the article came out in 1976, and and Bud Hopkins actually mentions it, which leads to an anecdote, which is I was doing a a, a talk at Mufon Symposium about abductions, and uh, Bud Hopkins came up to me and says, "How can you talk about abductions? You're not an abduction researcher." And I said, "You quoted from one of the cases I investigated in your first book," so that was how I could talk about it, and that was my complaint about bad UFOs is you did not mention. The Abduction Enigma, which uh, Russ Estes, Bill Cohn, and I had written in 1997 yeah. that came out with and a lot actually, of this information. Yeah, but, um, I should have uh, mentioned that because it is a fine book. And, and I'd also – I'd talked with Bill Cohn a couple times. I think he came to a couple of the PSYCOP uh, conferences and other uh, other gatherings. And, uh, um, you know, I think we're in pretty – pretty much agreement on this that these have you know psychological explanations and are not actually um, reflecting anything that's uh, occurring in the real world that's out of the ordinary and I, because I, I mean it, it used to be very common uh, for this to be interpreted as religious uh, 
religious beings, you know, angels or devils or whatever, and uh, incubi, succubi, and so on would uh, come at night and visit people, and uh, and they had, um, you know, sexual content to a lot of these things. Even back in the days, you know, of devils, would they, you know, be you know, alien uh, or not alien? Uh, demonic beings would come and would copulate with men and women, and. Uh, the theory was, well, they're trying to gather up the sperm and then they give it to, uh, you know, some other woman and make her pregnant with the devil's child or the other person's child or something. And uh, it's always had a sexual um, element to it. I have, I reproduced in that chapter some of the uh, two of the cartoons of Buck Rogers, cartoons from 1930, which shows... Uh, an abduction, uh, an alien abduction. Uh, Wilma, who I guess is like Buck Rogers' girlfriend, is abducted by this big circular craft. He uh, says, a great mechanical claw lifted Wilma up into the mysterious hovering sphere. And then when she's taken on there, she was um, given a what we would now call a um, table examination, you know, as they have these um, supposed stages or uh, uh, elements. So Eddie Bowler has a list of elements of UFO abductions that are supposed to indicate uh, a, a real abduction as opposed to a fantasized one. And uh, turns out that this... Um, uh, Buck Rogers story uh, lists it uh, uh, almost better than you know any of the modern stories. So, I mean, but it's really it's not uh, any deep mystery here. I don't think it has to do with you know with drama and with the way of telling a story and uh, you know what has to happen. And of course, she's laying on this table and she's in a very short dress. It's kind of slid up, and uh, the alien beings who are some sort of cat creatures are examining her. But it's uh, it's very interesting to see how this uh, has a lot to do with um, you know sexual imagery and such. We but we look at uh, some of the science fiction films from the 1950s. Um, I, I think of Killers from Space specifically with Peter Graves, which is really a bad science fiction movie. It's so bad it's it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he talks about he talks about how he was abducted out of the airplane that was about to crash, and they bring him to their cave where they're doing this sort of thing. And he's on a table, and he sees his heart taken out of his chest as they manipulate it and make sure that he's still alive and uh, that sort of thing. And so you have all the elements of the of, of the abduction of the big-eyed aliens. That was the big thing about the movie is he was really bothered by their big eyes and. Uh, uh, but you, you have all the elements of the abduction in this this really bad 1950s science fiction movie, when when Bud Hopkins and I pick on Bud Hopkins uh, because he was sort of the guru, saying there were no you know traditional sci-fi gods or demons to account for the abduction phenomenon. And we say, yeah, killers from space, pal. Uh, take a look at that. Yeah. And and you can and you can go from other things as well. The, the science fiction from the 1930s that you were talking about as well kind of leads us in that direction. So we've got all yes, that. Yes, sort of uh, Marty Kottmeyer has written uh, some articles that are just uh, really go into this in, in great detail. Of uh, you know science fiction precursors for the um, you know because uh, you're right. Bud Hopkins said that uh, we are unpredisposed to see. Uh, or maybe it was Jake, because I thought it was Hopkins who said that, you know, we are unpredisposed by science fiction to see, you know, uh, abductions of this story. And then he he uh, went into that and showed how no, we are very much predisposed to uh, to uh, see these things based on the existing science fiction. Well, even if we even if we we grant that point, 
that we're not predisposed. The, 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 the victim of abduction is not predisposed for the, by the science fiction. All we have to do is look at the uh, transcripts of the hypnotic regression sessions in which this information comes out, and you can see the operator, meaning the hypnotist, whether it's uh, someone called in by an abduction researcher to conduct the questioning or it's somebody else, or it's a researcher himself or herself doing it, uh, we see them leading them into that direction. You, you, you'll, you'll read the, the person saying, I don't remember anything more. And they say, yes, you can. There's much more there. You can get to that. Uh, we'll get you into a deeper state of, of, of yeah. hypnosis and bring all this stuff out. So, you know, there's a, a real problem the way the, the research is conducted and that sort of thing as well. Uh, I am not proposing that all abductions are the result of sleep paralysis, by the way. I think there's a lot of other explanations, but they're all terrestrially based. But sleep paralysis is one that I think leads to a lot of um, the belief that they're, they're, um, uh, 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 somebody's been abducted. And what I was thinking specifically is they say, well, you know, some of the abductions are not uh, pulled out of through hypnosis, but the person's come to them with an episode of sleep paralysis and said, this thing happened to me, and I seem to remember an entity in the room, and they put them under hypnosis and drag them into the alien abduction uh, arena. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Make it fit the story better. Uh, I can remember David Jacobs saying in some of his talks that uh, that when he first, when people are first um, put under hypnosis to talk about uh, the abduction that they uh, reportedly have had, that their stories vary all over the place and they don't recall it accurately. They don't get it accurately, but it's only after repeated sessions then they are able to. Re- call it accurately. In other words, he's saying that, you know, he uh, basically badgers them and leads them until they tell the kind of story that he wants them to tell, and then that's taken as proof that all the other people are telling the truth about these things. Well, course, John some Mack, people are talking John, about mil- John military abductions, and it's kind of silly, I think, but uh, some people well, take that seriously. I was you know, the idea you. that the, yes, the, military. the military is abducting people, yeah. John Mack had said at one point, and it's actually in Bryant's book about the close encounters of the forest kind. John Mack had actually right. said there was a strange matching between the abduction researcher and the type of story they got. And he said that, that you know, it was like the, the abductee sought out a, a, a abduction researcher. They sought out, out, out Mack for the philosophy, Eastern philosophy researcher or Hopkins for the uh, cold scientific aliens and, and Jacobs for the uh, hybrids. And I flipped the question on them, as did uh, Russ Estes and Bill Cohn, which is, don't you think maybe you're getting the story you want to hear as opposed to the guy search, searching you out? It's, the problem is not with the uh, abductee, it's with the, uh, with the researcher. Right. Yeah, even Phil Class commented on that uh, years ago, but of course, people won't believe it so much if Class says it, but if John Mack says it, then that's <laughs> much more uh, uh, revealing, I think. Well, uh, Robert, I have to say this. We've come to the end of our hour. Uh, all, all too quickly here. Uh, we'll probably have you back at some point so I can beat up on you some more. Or, uh, all right, that'll specific- be good fun. We'll get, yeah, we'll get some specific something and talk about yeah, yeah. it. There you go. Uh, his uh, 
website is www.debunker.com. The blog is badufos.com. And his latest book is Bad UFOs, and you can get all of that there. Uh, for more information on this, take a look at my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And for some of the, the minutiae that we talked about on Roswell, you can find it in my book, Roswell in the 21st Century, which goes into great depth about all of this. We will return next week with Chris Rakowski talking about UFOs on a different perspective. Until then... Uh, Stay loose, have fun, and we will return in 167 hours.